Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's Myriad Managing Editors. Danny, how are you? I feel great to be part of the Myriad, apparently. Yeah, you know, it's quite a, it's, it's a, an exclusive group, a coterie, a cohort, a cadre <laughs> even. Uh, anyways, we also have Natasha Moscarenas. How are you doing? I'm part of the ragtag group of non-San Francisco-based reporters for TechCrunch now. So I'm doing great. Because you're officially now in the East Coast for a couple of months, I think. Yeah, a couple of months. And I have storage in San Francisco, so I'll be back. Yes. And eventually, I, I can't wait to go back. I know this is off topic, but like, I just, I, this is the longest I haven't been to the West Coast in a decade. And I, even though I know it's currently on fire, I still would love to go visit. So I just, I can't wait to get back out there. I'm just that. looking forward to Super Duper. It's so good. Best veggie burger in the Bay Area. You heard it here first. We need to go back to the spawning point, which is Soma. All right. Anyways, um, <laughs> there is... <laughs> no, we don't. It's not true. No, we don't. <laughs> Why would I say that? <laughs> um, sorry, South Park. There we go. Okay. Anyways, uh, what matters is we have a zillion things to get through today. And thematically, we're going to start with some insane moments in the, in the public markets to kind of give context to what we're going to talk about later on. The biggest data point that came out was Apple reaching $2 trillion in market cap. And if you weren't on Twitter when this happened, it was kind of interesting because CNBC said $2 trillion and Yahoo Finance did. And it's kind of, everyone's kind of getting there at different times. But Apple, $2 trillion, it finally happened. Impressions, Danny? Were you surprised about time? How did this land with you? I mean, I think it's really a legitimate question whether Apple should join the United Nations. You know, last year they had a, uh, more than $200 billion in GDP. That puts them roughly in line with uh, New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand, according to the website I'm looking at, has a $205 billion GDP. And I think if New Zealand has representation, I don't see why Apple should not. So many thoughts about that. One, revenue and GDP are different. One is citizenry versus uh, corporate, you know, like you, you work for a corporation. I, I don't agree that it's joined the UN. I do like those analogies for comparative purposes, Natasha. Like it helps give scale. Like it shows you how big one thing is next to the other. But I wouldn't say it's going to join the UN because can you imagine Tim Cook just hanging out with all like the weird people at the UN? He would fit right in. He would, his speaking, his speaking presence, it just gives me UN vibes. Really? Totally. Oh gosh, I, I'm, I'm the outlier here apparently. There were other records though. The S&P hit a uh, record closing since February. We have erased the entire pandemic dip. The kind of broader stock market after the Nasdaq did that, though as we've all seen, the S&P is now five tech stocks and friends, the same five companies that you can kind of name. There was a stat in the Times that I didn't really get. It said that five companies now constitute 20% of the stock market's total worth. Ooh. Which stock market? You know, like how are they measuring that? It's, it, it's a weird stat, but I think it goes to show. A stat that I did like, I think that you put together, was that around three years ago, the big five, Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and Facebook, were worth $3 trillion together. And now just Apple and Microsoft are $3.6 trillion. And to me, that was just like a really good way to frame it. Maybe better than the UN way, actually. I'll give, I'll give you that. <laughs> because I thought that that was, I mean, it's the sheer size is insane. And of course it happened in 2020. Of course, it's part of this market rebound story. I feel like things are just like trekking along and everything yeah. is just this huge like uphill story now. Well, I think, I think part of the answer here, you know, we've talked about valuation multiples increasing for startups, but the same thing is true for tech companies as well. I mean, I'm looking at Apple, which by no means is not a, you know, is a new startup, <laughs> you know, a company founded in the 1970s, it's hitting almost 50 years, but like it's, it's multiple expansion. I mean, from a year ago, going from somewhere between 16, 18 PE ratio to 35 right now. 
right, alone just on the multiple expansion of what we value Apple as its revenue has doubled in just the last year, which to my mind sounds incredible because again, mature company, quite a challenging landscape for growth for Apple. I guess they go into cars, maybe they buy Tesla. I guess they can go into services, although with the App Store under attack by Epic Games and, and a bunch of other companies, Facebook. Uh, it just seems to me like, it's not to say that there's no more revenue to be grown, but like to double the P ratio in a year in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic in a time when more and more people presumably aren't going to upgrade their mobile devices. I'm not, and I always get the new device, but I don't use my phone anymore. I'm just very confused at how you make the math work on a lot of this. Is that why you never answer my texts? Because that would explain a lot. On the Tesla point, I have been working with Kirsten from the TechCrunch team covering the, the Tesla share price appreciation that has, I think, driven a lot of the SPAC noise that we're hearing about because Tesla rose, then Nikola, the car company, SPAC'd, and then SPACs got hot because Nikola did well, kind of counter-narrative how SPACs have done traditionally. Tesla is, is just going up every day. Like It's this weird moment. It feels like Yahoo stock in the 90s. Like you just pull up the stock, you look at it, oh, it's a 4% today, whatever. At some point, this has to stop. But I'm curious, what could be a, a confounding factor to the enthusiasm that seems to be imbuing you know, Apple stock, Tesla stock, so many tech and tech-ish companies? Uh, it feels like Bitcoin in late 2017, you know it's going to turn around at some point, but you don't really know when. And so you just feel, feel dumb until it finally happens. Because if you're sitting on the sidelines like we are, you know, you feel like you're missing out. It's FOMO. Well, and, and blockchain hit a new, or no, I shouldn't say blockchain, but Bitcoin hit a new recent record this week as well. So like, you know, it's interesting to see that it's all cross-correlated. You know, it's not that money is flowing out of one asset and going into alternatives or vice versa. Like everything is rising equally at all at the same time. You know, on Tesla, I think the question is, unlike Apple, where I do think there's some like cam concern, like they own the market that exists. <laughs> Everyone who has a mobile phone kind of has a mobile phone in the top two billion. You know, in Tesla's case, like that market is absolutely massively open in a way that like it's not in the mobile phone industry. So, you know, I, I, we always get to this bull, you know, bear conversation. Like I still remain somewhat bullish. I don't know if I would buy it this price, oh, but sure. you know, I, I would like to actually see it, uh, you know, realize itself a little bit more. But I do think that, you know, there is a legitimate TAM conversation to be had with some of these companies. A uh, final note before we talk about some, some IPOs to kind of bring this closer to home. But like I was talking to Jason Limkin on Twitter. Jason's a friend of the show. He was the first guest ever on equity. He actually helped us launch the show by being really promotional for us. So shout out to Jason. He was like, you know, we were talking about Tesla and I'm like, you know, it's so overpriced. Yeah, at 420, it was expensive. And he was like, what? That was like a year ago. Tesla has gotten smaller in terms of revenue than it was a year ago. And a bunch of the revenue that you're talking about there is actually from regulatory credit sales. So the company has gotten smaller, if I recall my, my math correctly, and it's worth like 800% as much. And I, that, that to me is the, is the thing that I just can't, I can't square no matter how much we talk about Tam or Elon Musk's hair or whatever. It just doesn't make any goddamn sense. Natasha and I were talking about this last night on a call. I, I think there's just less and less fundamentals analysis going on in the tech industry. It doesn't matter if it's early stage startups, late stage startups, publicly traded companies. Like there is some modeling with SaaS companies. But outside of that, I think it's just enthusiasm. It's hype. Natasha, you were just doing a call on D2C brands. And I mean, one of the crazy things with D2C brands is, is how much it's just about hype and the influencers around it. There's no actual product. There's no in some cases, gross margin. It, it, it blows my mind. And I, I think this is a great example. It's like revenues are down, therefore it's worth more and nothing else improved <laughs> along the way. I don't know how that works. But talking about completely made up bullshit, fictitious entities, we do have to talk about SPACs because I, I got to oh tell my you, God. <laughs> and, and I, I'm, I'm obligated to talk about SPACs because I've been ordered to talk about SPACs, despite yes. the fact that I've vowed not to talk about imaginary things. Um, and a SPAC is about as close to an imaginary thing as you can possibly have. 
but we've had multiple SPACs raised in just the last couple of days. Alex, why don't you talk a little bit more about that? Okay. So, well, we're tired of talking about SPACs and we're sorry to drag you through this again, but there's been a number. So <laughs> I think it was Hertz. Was it the Hertz co-founder, Kevin Hartz? Is that, do I have that words no. in the right order there? Kevin and, Kevin and Julia Hartz. Julia Hartz, we had on Extra Crunch Live a few weeks ago, but Kevin and Julia Hartz co-founded uh, Eventbrite, have our longtime angel investors, particularly in the aughts. And I, I think they're still active, but uh, less so today. Oh, well, there was a rental car person, or maybe I just misread the entire email and it was actually Hartz the whole time. And I thought it was Hertz. That's more likely. <laughs> Okay, well, in my mind, there was a rental car company that was doing this back. Kevin Hartz, 200 million, 20 million units priced at $10 a share. The Casper CEO, Philip Krim, looking to raise 300 million in a SPAC, um, 30 million units, $10 a share again. And finally, according to our notes, Paul fucking Ryan, he's going to raise $300 million, which seems to be kind of the magic number for SPACs that we've seen in the last couple of months, but just goes to show how far this mania has gone that Paul Ryan has been dredged out of, you know, whatever boardroom he's decided to retire in to help uh, launch a SPAC worth $300 million. Honest question, how and why does a singular human raise a SPAC? Like, what is the point of any of this? And I'm being honest, like, I genuinely don't get the context of it. You know, a lot of these bring their own brands and their own networks, right? So presumably all these folks, I mean, Kevin Hartz was at Founders Fund, or maybe is at Founders Fund, I don't remember if he left or not. You know, Krim obviously raised a bunch of money as Casper CEO, and then Paul Ryan obviously raised money as uh, a major fundraiser for the Republican Party over the years in which he was Speaker of the House. And uh, what was it, the vice presidential candidate for, for Mitt Romney, which seems like a totally different era. But I, I think the actual interesting question here, it's like, I understand why there's certain branded individuals who can raise money. And, and remember, they are filing to raise money. They aren't raised, right? It's actually sure. important to remember they're, they're just filing to say that they're going to raise this amount of money. We'll see if they're actually successful. But to my mind, the actual question is, is like, why are they always the same goddamn number? Right. Why is it always $300 million? It, it's yeah. like, uh, I, I was looking through books the other day and I had six books in a row randomly that all happened to be exactly 224 pages. And I had no idea, like, why is that the magic number in publishing? I'm sure there's a reason. And yes. much the same here. Like, I, I'm sure there's a reason 300 million is like a nice number. But like, if you think about what's, what a, a startup or a private market company is today, it's 300 million bucks. Like that buys you nothing. That's like a million in SaaS revenue. <laughs> but you're buying a fraction of a private company and taking Possibly. that public. But like, yeah, there, there's your 6%. So maybe you, you take out a, a $10 billion company on 3%. I don't know. But I, I think it's, it's nuts. Yeah, it's mess. Um, it, it seems completely arbitrary. But I think there's a larger conversation to have around liquidity. And, you know, to my mind, what is actually happening here is, you know, after a decade of having so many private market companies stay private, you know, mostly from the advice of folks like Mark Andreessen, Peter Thiel, and others who popularized the idea of, you know, founders should maintain control of their startups for as long as possible. There are now hundreds of unicorns, lots of stuff on the uh, private markets. The number of public companies is at an all-time low. There are less IPOs. In fact, as we talked about last week on the show, one-fifth of all IPOs are SPACs in and of themselves. So I think that there's just this huge backlog of companies that want to go public. And, you know, SPAC seems to be one of the market ways that they're doing that. I think an example that stood out recently to me was when Lululemon bought Mirror. And a big part of the story was just the fact that it hadn't been founded 10 years ago and that this exit is, is shorter than we're used to. And to me, that was... An anecdote I was able to grasp on is like, wow, it really is so surprising that companies are even being acquired before they get to that, to the, to that mark. Yeah, you know, I, I've been thinking about like a hierarchy of liquidity. And at the bottom, I put SPACs, which are still, in my mind, sketchy things. I'm sorry. I, I've yet to be convinced these are real. And then in the <laughs> middle, I put like traditional IPOs. You know, some of these go well, some of them don't. 
And then you have up the top direct listings. I mean, like you don't need cash. You're going to trade on reputation. You're well-known enough. You can just go out and do it. And that's why I was kind of curious or nah, not curious, but maybe a little surprised to see that Asana is going to pursue a direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, Asana, uh, if you're behind, has been quietly growing in the background. Uh, I think it had 100 million ARR, like late 2018, early 2019. So it's now probably, I don't know, 150 to 250 million ARR, depending on how you do the math. Large company, ready to go out. I just didn't think it was a well-known enough name to do a direct listing. But apparently, I'm, I'm wrong about that. Software shares are hot, so we'll have to see. Uh, reporting says that it's now worth $5 billion on the private markets, uh, the kind of equity zen type areas. Last valued privately at $1.5 by investors, so pretty good yield there. And it raised $200 million in debt this summer. So it kind of like brought on capital, now can direct list without worrying about cash. Kind of a cool model. I, I'm just kind of curious to see how well it does. But I, I bet you a dollar that if it does well with this model, debt raised with convertible notes, direct listing, and then you know good performance, it's going to become the new way to go public because they'll, they'll have blazed a particular path there. Well, I'm, I'm actually curious that like, I think, you know, last year when we were covering IPOs, it's like, okay, does Casper set the stage for D to C IPOs going forward? Do you think the power of a, a category defining company going public is less exciting now? Like I think it really depends on the market, right? So we saw Lemonade as an IPO and InsureTech is a lot harder to understand. There's just hasn't been a lot of examples of purely InsureTech. Obviously, there's a ton of public insurance companies. So it's harder to make a direct listing work in, in markets where the business model is not widely understood by people outside of the specializations at major banks. You know, Asana is a SaaS play. It's not all that different from Slack. I mean, it's, 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 it's a collaboration software, small teams focused, but also has large enterprise clients. I, I'm guessing it has kind of the same shape to its business in some ways. It might be at a different stage, kind of similar unit economics. And so now that Slack has done its direct listing, we've seen Spotify do its direct listing. You know, you, you, as you get more and more of these examples, it becomes easier for others to follow the same path. So let me move us on to Airbnb really quickly because there was some news slash non-news this week that I think <laughs> Natasha was a huge fan of. So let me explain what's going on. They filed to go public, but they filed to go public privately. So they've confidentially decided to tell us publicly that they're not going to tell us their numbers, but they are going to go public and tell us their numbers eventually. So it's a non-news news thing, but they're going to go public. Yay. I feel like at this point, I just want it to happen. I feel like I I've, have... I've got... <laughs> I was gonna say I have trust issues with Airbnb. Literally, when when they filed yesterday, I think I didn't even blink. I was like, "This is happening, sure, maybe." But weren't there also rumors that it was going direct? There was the direct listing route last week. Well, so it, it was supposed to go direct listing originally. I mean, if you go back to like late 2019, they said we're going to go public in 2020, and everyone kind of knew it was going to be a direct listing. Bloomberg is now reporting that it's going to be a traditional IPO, not a direct listing. Which I think makes sense, Danny. That they they got they raised two billion in capital in the last six months, and it was pretty expensive. So if you're gonna go public, you probably want to get a chunk of cheese and slice that off. Uh, that was my cheddar analogy for money. I don't think it worked that well. Anyways, I'm not shocked that they're gonna raise actual cash in this IPO. That makes sense to me. They just had a really rough time. I mean, you probably just want to have the cash for safety, security, and just sleeping well at night. Do we I know they're not raising cash? I'm sorry. I, no, I they that. are going to. So they they're expected to, to now yeah. pursue a traditional IPO, not a direct listing, unlike yeah, I mean, Asana. I, I actually literally don't know this. It's the same filing for a direct listing as a traditional IPO. Couldn't they just switch at some point? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's why we're, we're in a guessing game. So I, I think it's still up in the air. I mean, my guess is a traditional IPO makes more sense given the turbulence in the last two yes. quarters. They're going to need to talk to people much more carefully uh, and sell a story and a yarn to convince people that everything's okay, particularly given that yesterday Airbnb banned parties. 
pit all their properties, which one has to admit, like, you know, you're going to do an IPO and there's no party available at the IPO party, I guess, because or at least they'll have to be it at the Hilton or something. Do you, do you think that Airbnb executives are renting out pedestrian Airbnbs to host the Airbnb corporate uh, party? No, they're taking the Hyatt or the Mandarin Oriental. I don't know. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, I'm a little bummed that this is how we're talking about Airbnb. Like after all this time, Airbnb defined marketplace for a lot of founders. It was founded in 2008. The world has changed so much. And the fact that this is the note that it's going out on makes me sad. I'm sure it's, you know, we all have the context. So no one's going to be like, marketplaces are doomed. Obviously, Airbnb was hurt more than other marketplace startups. But it just it just bums me out a little bit to, to see it end like this. P- pivoting the conversation to something very similar, uh, Cabbage, which has been uh, was also founded roughly uh, contemporaneously with Airbnb, uh, SMB lending marketplace that was actually huge. I mean, it had raised 950 million debt and equity plus 3.5 billion in securitization for its loan product sold to Amex for mm. what it was described as roughly 850 million. So below the amount of money it had fundraised, you know, the founders who we've interviewed uh, both at Disrupt and for a couple of stories, like, you know, it was a harrowing start. They actually launched it right into the financial crisis. So imagine oh. launching a lending startup. You're Ooh. like, we're going to lend to small businesses. And then 2008 happens. And you're like, actually, lending is tough. It had a very rough first two years, grew the business tremendously over the last 10 out of Atlanta, Georgia. The panel last year, we actually did Cabbage, which had raised, you know, billions of dollars in capital, matched with Ben Chestnut MailChimp, who has never raised a dime of anything ever. And we're talking about the difference between like, should you fundraise, should you not fundraise? You know, how do you do it? To me, it's, it's sort of a sad and, and same way with, with Airbnb. You know, these are actually remarkable companies. They were very successful. Obviously, Airbnb has a much higher valuation, whatever. But, you know, to see them kind of you know, kind of scamper out onto the public markets or to uh, an exit with a little fanfare after 12 years of work and a lot of money down is 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 sad. It's very much like wa- watching the Olympics and someone's doing like an amazing like 440 or whatever, and they're just cruising. And then like the last 10 yards, they like trip a little bit and they kind of, they make it across the finish line, but it's not the, you know, the glamorous, like long strides shot. Like Airbnb is going to go public. It's going to be worth north of $10 billion. That's an enormous success. You can take nothing away from that. It's huge. But it would have been way doper to direct list worth 32 or whatever, you know? So, yeah. But I just, I want this to be done. I want to see the filing. I want to see the numbers. I want to see the recovery. That's what I'm super curious about. Kind of tangentially speaking, I forget how much optimism really gets internalized. We forget how um, our cynicism can sometimes trickle down to like the founders that listen to us. And it, it, it just was a nice reminder that I was like, all right, you're right. It's accessible. It's not easy, but it's accessible. Well, and another optimistic story, ThreadUp, which is not spelled the way you would think it would be uh, spelled. I expected that, Danny. I expected is that, that. Is, is that correct in our notes? <laughs> it's correct. <laughs> okay. Well, um, it's a Gen Z thing. Spe- it's a Gen Z oh, thing. Oh, it's a Gen Z thing. Okay, well, uh, we have a Gen Zer here. So Natasha, tell us what ThreadUp oh, no. is and what it's used for. Wait, wait, so, before you do that, I realize we have a Gen Zer, a millennial, and a boomer. It's perfect. Okay, Tosh, back to you. <laughs> Those are our personas. Those are our sales personas. Um, so an online marketplace that basically lets you sell secondhand clothing has planned for an IPO early next year. It's raised $175 million to date, um, and it was last valued at $670 million. 
everything is, you know, planning to IPO early next year. So I guess 2021, I can't even get my mind around next month. So I can't make any predictions or even really muse about what the appetite for that kind of retail business will look like in 2021. So. Well, again, we're talking about companies from 08. I mean, ThreadUp was founded in 2009, right? So we're in year wow. 11. Um, another example of a company where, you know, this, the, there's a whole cohort of companies 10 years ago that got founded in 08 in 2010. You know, people who, you know, either got lost in the great financial crisis, had huge issues, or, you know, changed tax to go find, you know, the new growth market. So obviously the App Store launched in 09, a bunch of other stuff. There were so many changes that came and that whole wave is now coming onto the public markets. And so I, I think the next couple of months are just going to be fascinating in terms of what's what's coming up. But but I want to do one more liquidity-related story before moving on. Because so much liquidity. There's so much liquidity. Who would have thought that liquidity mattered? You know, it's all about outputs, not inputs. And on equity, we never get to, to talk about outputs. And now all of a sudden, it's all coming up. But Chamath, who is someone we don't get to talk nearly enough about on this show. I think we talk um, about him just enough, actually. The, 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 the man formerly known as the SPAC king who finished, you know, who had a SPAC three years ago, uh, now has a whole nother model he's going at. So Natasha, you, you talked to Chamath last week. What, what happened? Yeah. So quick catch up for people who don't tune into him. He's the founder of Social Capital. And I'm being serious, okay? Because maybe the maybe the other G- Gen Z founders don't know his whole context. Fair but enough. he's trying to be the next Berkshire Hathaway with Social Capital, which kind of pivoted from a venture capital firm to a technology holdings firm. I'll let him have it. He has two strategies to do this. SPAC is the more one he's infamous slash famous for. And the, the next one and the one that I talked about is acquiring majority stakes in companies or fully acquiring companies. So most recently, he um, acquired Hustle, which we covered a lot, actually. He was the first check in. It's a company that does peer to peer text messaging with a large base of its clientele being nonprofits, government agencies. And honestly, they don't sell to Republicans. And that's their biggest differentiator. The the controversialness made sense that Chamath invested in it. But no, I, th- I thought it was interesting. He's really interested, as he told me, in these companies that show non-obvious data links. So he's trying to like slowly scoop up startups that can give you, give him a lot of data on consumers. Well, I, I think there's a huge opportunity for Hustle, which doesn't sell to Republicans, to get spacked by Paul Ryan and presumably his SPAC design and make everything whole again. <laughs> I, I, ha- I have a point. I want to go back to uh, the idea that Chamath is going to build the next Berkshire Hathaway. One thing that Warren Buffett has famously, in my view, having read stuff about him for a long time, I think even a couple of biographies, because I was really cool as a teenager, is, is a lot of patience. And one thing that tech folks in general, just people in tech, tend to not have lots of is patience. And so I'm going to be very curious to see how Chamath approaches that and how well it goes. Because if you can pull the patience off and buy the right companies and hold on to them, and build social capital into something super cool, huzzah, you know, more power to him. But it, it's very different than the, the diverse set of things he's, he's approached in the past. I mean, to me, he's a guy who's always doing something new, you know, kind of rapid fire-ish, which is great for us because lots to talk about, you know, no beef at all. But like, it's not the Berkshire model when I think about it, which is buying to hold long-term investments and cash generation from companies. I get that. And I, I think one stat that I saw that, really surprised me was in 2019, Social Capital made $1.7 billion in cash and cash equivalents. And that was through Slack with its direct listing and Virgin Galactic, which went public through a SPAC. And so for Chamath, that's great news because that proves his thesis that his way of doing it, he's doing better as a 
he's not a solo capitalist. He's a chamath, but he's he's happy. He's happier. <laughs> Alex, go. He's, Alex, his, go. he's his own genus. Yeah. <laughs> Two data points. Two does not in my view, validate the model. I respectfully disagree. I think those are two things that make him look very smart in the short term. And to be clear, I'm sure he's lovely. I don't know. But like, I, I, would, I would want more data points before I chart that chart out. Now, we're, we're going to stop talking about liquidity. We're going to go from outputs to inputs, as Danny would like to say. And we are going to do some notes on our favorite funding rounds from the week. And we're going to start with a thing called Labster. Yes. So Labster is an ed tech company that I actually have written about their Series B back in April when I was at Crunchbase News, but they bring virtual reality software to science classes. So think if you are a student in a new remote learning world and you want to experiment, understand chemistry, navigate literally, and this is quote for quote, like an exoplanet, you can log on to Labster, do your experiment and still get quote unquote a hands-on experience. I don't even need to pitch why that's important now. You get why. But the cool thing with Lapster's new round is that it just raised $9 million and it's using that to break into Asian markets. Its Series B was $21 million, and this check is more so just like another example of a small check an edtech company is using to break into a market because there's no other way to do that. And GGV is their best bet because they have a great Shanghai presence. So I love all that. So, but it's VR. So I can essentially telepresence into a hands-on environment. So if I can't get into a lab right now, say if there was a quote pandemic or something, <laughs> I could get the next best thing in a relatively high fidelity engrossing format. Exactly. And, you know, there's this huge chatter around ed tech VCs and founders that never go to the, B2, the B2B route, never pitch to districts because districts aren't going to make room for you. But when you think about how expensive lab equipment is, it gives you a little bit more belief in Labster, especially now, like those budgets are shrinking. There's no need to buy new stuff in a world where schools are shut down or we'll see if they stay shut down. But Labster has actually successfully landed some pretty key partnerships, which makes me a little bit more bullish on their success than I was a year ago. They um, added 2.1 million students with one deal with all of California's community colleges. So I'll wow, take wow, it. Wow. Yeah. I just, I'm thinking about things that would piss my dad off the most as a guy who likes like the physical world and like machining and lathes and stuff. I think this would be the thing that would cause his head to actually explode. Just like VR um, in general well, is like, I, well, I, I will <laughs> yeah. say having, having dissected fetal pigs and uh, also worked in an autopsy clinic. A I lot. mean, it's super fascinating to actually, you know, open things directly without virtual reality. I don't think this is as good, Danny. You know, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I joke about you being an uh, undertaker, but like, you know, I, I, I fully agree. A boomer, an undertaker. I'm updating my Twitter bio. I mean, <laughs> you might as well. Um, but like, but to be clear, as, as a middle ground for some students who can't get in there, because labs don't scale. There's a certain set number of desks. And, you know, if you want to expand education, this is probably a cool middle space. And I think that's why it's neat. I don't think it's a, an improvement. I think it's something else. And I think that we talk about like startups that, you know, are surging because of the pandemic, but might not after. And so Labster will be one to watch to see what happens next, because I I do wonder if that that new capital will. Sorry, Danny just yawned really aggressively. I couldn't ignore it. We're we're putting videos now on YouTube every week. You know that, right? Like This is all. Oh, by the way, everybody, this is now on YouTube. So hello, YouTube. Hello. And hello, Danny's enormous Yawn. Ma, I think um, we call it. 
I, I want to, I was going to say, I, I feel like you see the startups that are both pandemic era important and, and post-pandemic important. And that's why I want to talk a little bit about Welcome, Alex. That round you wrote really excited me because it, it made me think about future of work, work from home. So can you tell us about Welcome? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Welcome raised a enormous $1.4 million and they raised it in January and they announced it now. And I bring all that up because seed rounds are late. Like by the time you hear about a seed round, as Danny said on the show last week and maybe even the week before, they're probably out there looking to raise their A, you know? So they're really, really, it's delayed. And this just goes to show how far behind this stuff goes. People don't usually tell you when they actually raise it. Like it was, you know, a while ago. This time they actually did. So January. Oh. Anywho, 1.4 million, uh, four person team, super cool. What they're building is called a quote, first offer management and closing platform. If you've ever gotten a new job, which I'm sure everyone listening has, you're told things, numbers, and then you go like, cool. Or you ask for more here or there. And then you forget all of it by day three, if, at least for me. And you don't actually read any of the documents and it's kind of garbage. And if you work for a startup, there's like some stock involved. You don't know how much it's worth or what the valuation of the company is. It's all just a big mess. So what they're trying to do is take software, apply it to this really crappy part of HR, build some neat HR tech. And then what I think happens next is they begin to extend the product deeper into the onboarding cycle because they will already have a relationship with the new employee that's accepted the offer and the company making the offer. There's a lot of horizontal uh, product work they can do. The founders are really neat. Talk to them. It was uh, Ludlow Ventures, Weekend Fund, uh, Global Founders Capital, Shrug and Basement were in there. So it's kind of a who's who of like people you see on Twitter. But it's a neat company, one that I like. And I got to see screenshots of some customer stuff and it was, it was neat. It's, it's seed, you know, so we'll see if it works, but I like it a lot. I'm also super pro empowerment of employees to actually understand what they're getting paid. Like I think in startups, the equity world, like it's not just you if you're confused about your equity options. It's the company being kind of evil <laughs> for, for not being clear about it. And it's hard to ask about it, especially if you're a new employee. So I am very happy to see companies like this pop up. And, and talking about positive HR news, we had another funding round for Carrot. Uh, Carrot Fertility, um, which manages fertility benefits for a bunch of tech companies and uh, as well as non-tech companies. So, you know, if you need in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, egg, sperm freezing, all kinds of different services in the fertility space, you know, Carrot does it and they raised a 24 million Series B led yep. by U.S. venture partners along with F Prime Capital. Uh, and that's a total of 40 million altogether. And, and what's sort of shocking to me was given the remote work situation for a lot of folks, like, I'm actually curious, like, is fertility like more of an issue today than it was before? Is fertility less of an issue today? Is, is it a growth market for kids these days? I think the answer is yes. It is of rising importance. Yes. It is also something that people now expect from their employer because they will probably delay having children because of their job. Therefore, they draw, the company will get involved to some degree. Sure. And I think that obviously, if more people are having kids, we're going to need more startups in the childcare space too. So would love to see, you know, a, a full suite solution of fertility to childcare, to I don't know what's next. We're going to wrap uh, with something a little bit lighter than uh, fertility. We're going to talk about Oracle and TikTok, everybody, because we made jokes last week about bankers and Oracle and how, you know, there's no way Oracle would buy TikTok. And then lo and behold, news broke that uh, Oracle is actually in the running to buy TikTok. And then the president talked about it and called Oracle like a great American company or something. In between the two, Danny and I put together a post, which was entitled, If Oracle Buys TikTok, I'll Go to Danny's House and Eat His Annoying Stanford Sweatshirt. And um, it, it could actually happen. So I just to wrap things up, I want us to give little predictions. Uh, who actually buys uh, TikTok and why, why did Oracle not, not do it in your idea world? Natasha, you first. I don't think it's going to be anyone we even realize. 
is running that's going to buy TikTok? I, I don't think anyone's going to buy TikTok. I think it's going to go to zero. Ah. Ah. Alex? Uh, Microsoft between uh, 8 and 15 billion is my guess. But I mean, that's, that's, I mean, to be clear, that's just completely random. That's just me saying things out loud. It's not based on anything. But the short answer is I don't want to go to New York. I do not want to eat Danny's annoying Stanford sweatshirt. And we wouldn't have made that joke if the president was going to endorse the company we were joking about uh, buying the company. So this is how uh, jokes backfire. And it's good evidence that you should never have fun on the internet, especially not on the <laughs> blog, because it will immediately boomerang back. And guys, we are overtime, so we have to stop there. But we're back Monday morning, back Friday. And as soon as Palantir files, we're doing a shot. We'll talk to you all then. Bye.